0: Hey, have you ever had to make an important decision in life? Yeah, probably, right? Have you guys ever heard the band? And this is, I only know this band because of the radio station, The Oldies, not because I lived during the time, but uh, The Lovin' Spoonful. You guys know that band? Anybody recognize that name? An American rock band that was popular during the mid to late 1960s, and they had hits like Summer in the City, Do You Believe in Magic, and one of their songs was Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind. You guys know that song? The lyrics go go like this. Did you ever have to make up your mind, pick up on one and leave the other behind? It's not often easy and not often kind. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Did you ever have to finally decide? Say yes to one and let the other one ride. (laughs) There's so many changes and tears you must hide. Did you ever have to finally decide? It, It gets worse. Sometimes there's one with deep blue eyes, cute as a bunny, with hair down here and plenty of money. And just when you think she's that one in the world, your heart gets stolen by some mousy little girl. And then you know you better make up your mind, pick up on one and leave the other behind. It's not often easy, not often kind. Did you ever have to make up your mind? It gets worse, I'm not done. <laughs> Sometimes you really dig a girl the moment you kiss her and then you get distracted by her older sister. This, is, this was really a song. <laughs> and when, when in walks her father and takes you in the line and says, better go home, son, and make up your mind, then you'd better finally decide and say yes to one and let the other one ride. There's so many changes and tears you must hide. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Now, don't do not do a show of hands. How many of you guys remember that song from when it came out? But there was a time where I had to make up my mind and make, up, make a decision. Liz always says, don't share that story from the pulpit. They're not gonna respect you. But I was 22 years old. It was my senior year at Central Bible College and I don't know if it was just because in in 2005 it was different than it would have been for my dad's time, but I got asked out one semester by two different girls. <laughs> yep, yep, I had it. Two different girls, uh, they asked me, they approached me. They were aggressive and said, "Would you like to go out and get lunch sometime or go see a movie or or that one was spiritual and asked me to go to a prayer meeting. And, and I said yes to both because I'm a nice guy. And I just love making friends and connections at Bible college. And so I went out. Now, the one that I really liked, her name was Elizabeth Triplett and uh, ended up marrying Liz. <laughs> she loves this story. and And she didn't approach me and ask me out. She didn't do that. But these other two girls did. And I said yes to them. And I remember my friend said, well, Justin, you got to make up your mind. And I said, well, I've, I made up my mind. I, I'm crazy about Liz. And he said, well, you need to tell these other girls that, that you're just wanting to be friends because I think they might be interested in you and maybe pursuing something more more than a friendship. And so I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go and uh, tell them that I'm just interested in friendship and friendship only. And so I went out and, and I remember somehow the the conversation just, it went away. I didn't, plan for it to go, and I was trying my hardest to tell her there's somebody else that I, I'm kind of crazy about, and, and uh, she thought that I was talking about her, and then I didn't want to hurt her feelings, so by the end of the conversation, she thought that we were now exclusive, <laughs> and, and I, I left, and I went to chapel, and I sat by my friend, and he said, how'd the talk go? And I said, I think she thinks that we're now boyfriend and girlfriend and in a serious committed relationship. And he said, but you're going out with so-and-so at noon. What are you going to do? And I said, I'm going I'm to tell them the same thing. And I, the same thing ended up happening. And so I had two girls that thought I was committed to them. Meanwhile, I'm in love with Liz. <laughs> I had to make up my mind. Making up your mind can be difficult. Making decisions can sometimes be difficult. I'm getting a lot of weird looks. Here's the good thing about the Bible and the gospel is God has so much grace, amen? And your pastor finally grew up, and after being rejected by Liz over and over and over again, there was just something that happened. Liz just finally said yes to uh, going out and eating with me, and the rest is history. I have an amazing, beautiful wife that I love so much, and uh, I made the right decision. Somebody say amen. There it is. Come on. (laughs) <laughs> My 13 year old daughter is in here this morning And Allie finds somebody that was better than I was When I was 22 years old we, we all face decisions in life Some carry more weight than others But we all face decisions, right? Gold Star or Skyline Big Mac or Whopper Maple, maple Bar or a Chocolate Long John Come on, they're decisions we make just kidding. Those, those decisions, they don't really carry that much weight. But, but we do make decisions in our life that carry a lot of weight. You know, Some are gonna consider changing a job this year. Uh, relocating to another city, state, maybe even country. Some are gonna make a decision this year on what college to go to or not to go to. Some are gonna make a decision to enter into grad school and further their studies. Maybe some are gonna make a decision to adopt a child or some are gonna make the decision to have a child. You might make decisions on major purchases this year. Maybe there are some that are gonna buy a home or a car or maybe even buy a business. Some will face the prospect of getting married and others might might need to determine if God wants them to pull up roots and leave and and go be a missionary overseas. And the list of possible, possible decisions for people that they face go on and on and on. Most of us sometimes make discovering God's will way, way more complicated than it really has to be. As a pastor, this is probably the area in which I'm asked to help the most. Of all the things that people want to talk to a pastor about, uh, if if I had to say, man, that's that's the one thing probably that I get asked the most is people want m- me to help them find God's will in their life regarding different circumstances or situations. And here's what you need to know about discovering God's will for your life: God wants you to know His will. He wants you to know his will, especially about really important decisions in your life. And he provides guidance for you in his word. Get that? How about that? In his word, he actually provides guidance for you in discovering his will for your life. In our text today, we're going to read about Jesus ascending to heaven and his followers are left to make this really important decision. They need to replace the apostolic office that was vacated by Judas. Judas committed suicide, he's gone, he betrayed, after he betrayed Jesus, and now they need to fill that office. And the way that they approach this decision is significant, really for two reasons. Number one, it had huge ramifications for the future of God's kingdom. And it gives us a really good model for the way that we as Jesus followers should approach decision-making in our own lives. Those two things go together, by the way finding God's will and making decisions and making those decisions in view of God's mission. They go, they go together. In fact, look with me at verse nine. We'll start, we'll start reading down there right now. Verse nine, we're gonna go... We're gonna make our way down this passage. I know it's a big chunk. We're gonna do everything we can to get done today. Verse nine, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? (laughs) I've always thought that was funny because why does he have to ask that question? I mean, wouldn't you stand staring up into the sky if you literally just saw somebody floating up into the heavens. I would. But this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come into the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Man, talk about a powerful three verses right here. Immediately following the powerful mission that that Jesus gave his followers and the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is taken back up to heaven. It's significant because it marks a change in redemptive history. You see, when Jesus came to earth, when he died on the cross, when he was buried and resurrected, and then when he went back to the Father in heaven, and, and, and then with the coming arrival of the Holy Spirit, it ushered in a new era in history. It was the era of the new covenant. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament, he explained it this way. In chapter Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, He says, Then again, Ezekiel talks about it in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 27, says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Ezekiel lists several aspects of the new covenant here, a new heart, a new spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and true holiness. You see, the Mosaic law, the old covenant, it could provide none of those things. In Romans 3.20, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is a, a new covenant, a, a new era. This is so significant, the ascension of Jesus. And you know what else the new covenant is different from, all, from the old covenant? Is that the new covenant includes men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, the old covenant was restricted to those who were physical descendants of Abraham. But the new covenant comp- comp- is made up of Abraham's spiritual children, those who exercise saving faith in Jesus. That's why in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is a new covenant, a new era, a new season in the history of redemption. The result of this new covenant is we are called to be missional people. Church is called to be missional. We no longer find our identity and our ethnicity, but we now, find, and we now identify with Jesus and with his global kingdom. That means our church exists to evangelize and preach the gospels to nations, to people groups, to everybody. No amen, huh? <laughs> And here's the best part of this, the, these verses that I just read is verse 11, Jesus who had ascended into heaven would also come back the same way he left. Now we just celebrated Christmas, that was Jesus incarnate. He came humbly as a baby, but Christ is going to come back. This time, not, not as a humble baby, but as a king with power and ultimate authority. He's gonna return as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, And he will be accompanied by an angelic host to claim his church and crush the head of the enemy once and for all. Come on. Now you look at this verse, you think about it for a minute. The very fact that the angels reminded the apostles that Jesus was gonna come back is significant. Significant for us today. I mean, the one thing the angels wanted them to know after Jesus had just left was he's coming back. Now, right now, he is physically absent, but we need to hold on to his return with eyes of faith and trust that Jesus will come again. He's coming back. Don't overlook this. The resurrection was not the finishing point of Jesus' journey. It was part of the route to him being glorified. You understand that? Now, three things, three things really quick this isn't, if you're taking notes, you can jot these down, but there's three things the ascension demonstrates for us, and it's this. It, it demonstrates the reality of Jesus's lordship. You know, Jesus ascended to heaven. He does it through the power of God, and do you know what that means? It means now Jesus is reigning from the throne of God, and even though he's physically absent from the church, he's actively ruling over his church from the place at the right hand of God. Number two, it means that he's our mediator. right? At least for those who believe in him, Hebrews explains this to us. It says Christ became the believer's superior, great high priest, and is currently interceding for his church. It's a powerful truth. It's pretty cool because that means we can know, we can have hope that Jesus is acting on our behalf all the time. That's amazing. Number three, Jesus has an active—he's uh, active participation in judgment. God the Father, he's the ultimate judge. Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, is also given the privilege and authority to judge. And this happened when Jesus went back to heaven and began to judge the hearts of man. All right, so as you read the New Testament, you see over and over again, all of these realities are tied to both Jesus's current present reign and his promise to return. Big deal, Jesus is coming back. It is a big deal, come on. And these disciples, they're staring into heaven. They're astonished and, at all that Jesus had done. And they, honestly, they're, they're just enamored with Jesus as he leaves. And so should we. We should too. Little love for the kingdom produces little zeal for the king's mission. We should be enamored with all that Jesus has, has done. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with a reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Wow, very, very descriptive. Verse 19, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called uh, Barsabbas and also called Justice and Matthias. Man, he just needs to pick a name. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this group of people who who love you and love your word and allow your word to be a guide in our lives. I pray today that you would do what I am not capable of doing, and that's speak to the hearts of all those that are here today in person and online. And Lord, we would take the the truth of your word and apply it to our lives and see real transformation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Luke is, is a details kind of guy. And a lot of people have asked me, hey, are you gonna skip this part when you get to it? And I, I've told you, I love listening to preachers. I love to preach expository and I listen to expository preachers. So I've probably got six different preachers that I listen to on a weekly basis that I love and respect. And I was shocked that all six preachers during their series in the book of Acts actually skip this, this part. And, and I've, I can't believe that because it's, it's an important important because it's in the Bible, right? And a lot of people don't even understand why this is in the Bible. What, what does this, why put this story in the Bible? Well, first of all, it, it's in the Bible because it happened, right? And it's important for us today to understand that some things in Acts or some things in the Bible, they're descriptive and they're not prescriptive. So, but all scripture's God breathed, all scripture has authority, all scripture's useful. It, if it's in the Bible, it's important and we need to read it and go over it. Now, what I mean by descriptive and prescriptive is this. A passage is descriptive if it is simply describing something that happened. While a passage is prescriptive if, if, that, if it is specifically teaching that something should happen. All right? Simply put, it's, it is a description. Is it a description or a command? Is the passage describing something that happened or is it prescribing something that should happen? The difference is important. It's important for you to understand this because when a biblical passage is only describing something but's interpreted as prescribing something, well, that can lead to all kinds of craziness and chaos. So it's important that you understand that as we look at this passage, we as students and anybody who says yes to Jesus, you need to become a student of the Bible. As students of the Bible, we've gotta be cautious to identify the type of passage that we're reading, especially in the book of Acts where it's gonna talk a lot about the historical, it's an historical narrative telling us how the early church began. I like how John Stott uh, says it. He gives us some really good wisdom on how to deal with texts like today. He says, what's described in scripture as having happened to us or or, having, I am sorry, as having happened to others is not necessarily intended for us. Whereas what is promised to us, we should appropriate. And what is commanded us, we are therefore to obey. What is descriptive is valuable in determining what God intends for all Christians, only in so far as it is interpreted by what is didactic. We must derive our standards of belief and behavior from the teaching of the New Testament, rather than from the practices and experience which it portrays. So a good principle... To follow or a good principle is to interpret the descriptive in light of the prescriptive. I know I'm getting really teachy here, but it's important that you get this. We're not commanded, we're not we're not told to copycat what the Bible describes unless it's prescribed in direct teaching of timeless spiritual truth. In other words, we must interpret descriptions in the book of Acts in light of what the gospels and the epistles teach as timeless truths. And a spoiler alert. A lot of what we see in the book of Acts is taught throughout the epistles. And we'll get to that as we go. But you need to be really careful. Be a student of God's, God's word. Today, we're looking at a descriptive part of the Bible. I'm not gonna tell you to go base your life's decisions, your future on casting, casting lots. Because I know when you read that passage, and we might not even get into it today, we might get into it next week, but when you read something like that, um, you're like, what in the world? With such an important decision, why did they go Yahtzee? You know, like, why'd they do that? We'll get into that. And today I'm not telling you that you need to go cast lots in order to know your future, okay? Um, but what we, and in fact, I'll just say this, the disciples probably had in mind, they may have had in mind Proverbs 16:33, where it says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it is, every decision is, is from the Lord. Now, with this exception here in, in the New Testament, it's, it's the only time casting lots is used in the New Testament. And, and here's what I would say. It's, it's a bad idea for you to, to use this as a practice for, you know, trying to figure out your future and your next step. Because when you read the entire New Testament, the normal way over and over and over again for discerning the will of God is not casting lots but being transformed in the renewal of your mind that you may be able to prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's what Romans 12, uh, one through two teaches us. And then in Ephesians five seventeen, Paul says, strive to know what the will of the Lord is. If it was as easy as casting lots, Paul would have never talked like he did, okay? So it was a special case. The apostles had to be chosen directly by Jesus. And later God gave the church clear instructions, for appointing leaders. In fact, I love how R.C. Sproul says it. He argues that by casting lots, we're asking God to give us direct, immediate revelation, which he gave in sacred scripture. But when the canon of scripture was closed, we don't get that kind of supernatural revelation afforded to us today. We're called to live our lives and to make our decisions on the basis of the teaching of scripture. So again, why I love this passage and we'll probably have two parts this week and next week. Why I love this passage is it's going to show us how important God's word is in our life, right? All right, so Luke, he lists 11 apostles by name in verse 13. He helps us to understand Peter's speech in verses 16 through 22. Jesus had appointed 12 apostles corresponding to the 12 sons of Jacob, the tribal leaders of Israel. And now Peter's saying that the apostolic number of 12 had to be restored just as the true Israel needed to be complete. Israel was now entering into this new era in redemptive history, and so the 11 apostles head to the upper room, and they were not alone. Because our text mentions a few more names. Mary and the brothers of Jesus were there. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Because hey, they weren't big fans of Jesus while he was living. Now, Mary, Mary loved Jesus, but his brothers, his brothers were not big fans of, of Jesus. They did not believe what, some of the stuff that Jesus was saying. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we actually read that his brothers are placed in opposition to Jesus and to his ministry. You can look at Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Mark actually notes that Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. I don't. I don't blame him. I mean, if I had a brother claiming to be God, I might think he's out of his mind too. But and and then the Apostle John mentions that not even his brothers believed him. They did not believe Jesus. So, if you're looking at our text today, now his family is counted among the small band of faithful believers in the upper room. It's significant. Here it is, church, listen to me. Let me tell you something. I don't care how lost your loved one is. I don't care how far they are from God. Today, you need to be reminded of God's incredible power to redeem the lost. Luke notes, they go and they begin to pray concerning the situation. We see the phrase united in prayer. They're united in prayer. What a different description of who they were as we read in the gospels, constantly fighting and arguing who's gonna be the greatest. And now they're united in prayer. One way the church demonstrates unity is praying together praying together. We are in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting, and you could come and pray every single morning. We, we're, we open the sanctuary at 6 a.m. I know that's early. I know. 21 days, though. 21 days, that's it. You could come and pray at 6 a.m. with different people in the church, and then every day through this, this prayer and fasting, we're opening up our sanctuary from noon to one, and we're praying together. And then every Wednesday during this time, we're having a prayer meeting, prayer and worship. Right here in our sanctuary, 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., we are gathering together and we are praying together there is power when we come and join in prayer together because prayer is it's a declaration of our our dependence on him and our unity with each other and all throughout acts we see the church display this power of the gospel to the world and they do it through their unity you know one reason corporate prayer is so important in some ways more effective than solitary prayers is is the principle agreement Matthew 18, 19 says, again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. You know, another thing that happens here is that Luke highlights a moment where Peter stands up and he speaks from Psalms. He speaks from Psalms about God's providence over Judas's betrayal and God's command for Judas to be replaced. We see that in verse 15 through 16. And I think it's important to note this, that after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter realizes that all, all of Scripture testifies about Jesus. All of Scripture. One more example of how the apostles were Christ, Christ-centered in their interpretation of the Bible. Peter even quotes Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-five, and 109, 8, and, and it, he, then he defines these qualifications for the replacement of this apostle. They had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' life and his resurrection. And and listen to me today. Christianity is founded on the historical resurrection. And those who first proclaimed the, the resurrection had to be trustworthy and they had to be informed. So he's listing these qualifications. He mentions two men, Joseph and Matthias. They turned to the Lord in prayer to seek his will on the decision, verse 24 through 25. And then lots were cast and a lot fell to Matthias. Now, I want you to draw some truths from this narrative, and here they are. When making decisions, make decisions in view of God's plan of redemption. When you're making decisions in your life, make decisions in view of God's plan of redemption. The primary reason this story is in the Bible is not to help us learn how to find God's will. It's in the Bible because it informs us how God sovereignly worked to advance his mission. Here's the deal that reveals something to us about finding his will. And it isn't as hard as you think. It's pretty obvious. We need to make our decisions in view of God's unfolding plan of redemption. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're on this planet to fulfill his mission of bringing back lost people. Then it makes all kinds of sense that every decision we face in this life, and we're gonna face a lot of them, should be faced in the view of that mission. Does that make sense? When these disciples had to replace the apostle, they were answering some really important questions. Questions that are important for you and I today as we follow Jesus and we, we want to make the most of our life. Here, here's some of the questions they were asking. What are the immediate ramifications for the gospel? I mean, do you ask that question when, when, when you're facing a big decision in life? Is this something that's important to you? What are the immediate ramifications for the gospel? The word apostle means one who is sent. So Jesus was the one who instituted the, the formal office, and he did it in order to send out these guys who could proclaim his message with a supernatural power. The official office, it was important. The apostles were eyewitnesses. They had observed firsthand the life of Jesus. They had observed his death and his resurrection. They were firsthand learners, and they could pass on Jesus's teaching. And, and I, well, I'll get into that next week. We'll talk about apostolic succession. We're, we're going we're to keep to the point here, but they knew that by filling this position, they were acknowledging and valuing the need for an eyewitness testimony of the gospel after Jesus had left. Now, We face this truth, we see this truth, and it's found all throughout the New Testament. When you and I are face-to-face with an important decision in our life, we need to be concerned about how our decision is either gonna enhance or hinder the gospel being advanced. They were concerned they asked this question, what are the eternal ramifications for the gospel? What are the eternal ramifications of the gospel? It was imperative to fill Judas' spot. Jesus told the 12 that they have this unique role in the coming kingdom of God. They would judge the 12 tribes of Israel, and by filling Judas' spot, the church was acknowledging and valuing the special role of the apostles. They had important work to do, and, and here's what that's showing. Every decision that we make in life, our choices can have eternal impact. Every decision we make can have an eternal impact. So they're asking these questions. And here's a, here's, here's a good example. I remember serving as a pastor when I first left Central Bible College and I had a, a gentleman come into the church and he, he was, he started doing really well with his business. He started a business and, um, he was buying different uh, laundry mats and the Lord was just pouring his blessing on this individual. And, he was starting to make some really good money, and he came in. He was very structured, and he had this list to show me his finances, and I was just blown away by that. He, I got to see all of his finances, where he's spending his money, and, and he just said, Pastor Justin, I just want your help. I'm trying to make a decision. We, we, we have enough money, and you can see I've made these charts for you, and I'm thinking, yeah, I see it. And... Uh, he said, I think we wanna buy this new home and we just, you know, you can see we can afford it and I don't know if he was just looking for my blessing. I'm not really sure why he, he brought me into it but I said, yeah, I mean, looking at the numbers, it looks like you can afford this this new home and I said, you know, you deserve it. This, is, this could be a good uh, good purchase for you and your family. So, and we prayed and a couple of weeks later, I, I asked him, hey, did you ever buy that house? And he said, no, I changed my mind, decided not to do it. And I, I said, well, why, why did, you, uh, why did you make the decision not to do it? And he said, you know, my wife and I talked and we started thinking of uh, how, how we could impact the ministry with, with some of this money. And if we move into this home, that's gonna take some that we could give. And, and we had just made a missions pledge. They had just committed a faith promise. And they said, we just feel like this would be a better investment, that if we moved into the house, it would be less money for us to give. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to go sell your home and move into a smaller. I'm not telling you. But this guy was asking those questions with every decision that he had to make. And he was thinking, "How could if I make this decision, how is it going to impact the kingdom? And he felt that he could make a bigger impact by living in a smaller house and giving more to missions. And, man, I admire that. I admire that. He was asking, what are the the eternal ramifications for the gospel if I go and buy a bigger house? He asked himself those questions. So we see this situation playing out in the text today. The disciples had to distinguish between God's revealed will and God's concealed will. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, the truth is that some of God's will, it's black and white. Some of God's will is is black and white. As I read the book of Acts, we know that, that the apostles and the early believers, they knew part of God's will because they knew scriptures, all right? They knew there was an apostolic office and they knew they needed to fill that that office because God had said so. All right? You want to know the primary place to find God's will? It's in the pages of the Bible. It's in the pages of the Bible, it's in this Bible. God's revealed everything necessary for our salvation in God's word. We don't need to wonder if we should be making disciples. We don't need to be wondering if we need to be praying or living holy lives, bearing fruit, loving people, being faithful in our marriages, marrying believers or non-believers. I mean, this stuff is in God's word. It's his revealed will. It's right here, you have it, okay? You can be confident in pursuing God's revealed will. Those things are gonna be found in your Bible. And the disciples understood they needed to fill Judas's spot. They didn't know the name of the guy who, who was supposed to step into the role. They knew they needed to fill the spot, didn't know the name of the guy who was going to step into the role. And the part of the story was concealed. And they had the responsibility of uncovering it through prayer and wise action. And here's something that's important for us to understand this morning. God was not hiding the man's identity from them. They knew that God had chosen someone for the office, you see that in verse 24, but they needed to work through the process of seeking God's will to find out who it was. Do you see the important principle here? Okay, an example of this is we know that marriage is sanctioned by God, it's supposed to reflect the gospel, but we have to discern who that specific spouse is going to be. We know that we, we need to work hard, we, not be lazy, but we don't necessarily know what job God wants us to take or what degree we should pursue in college. We have to discover that. That's our responsibility, discover those details. We have to do the work of making sound, solid decisions in our life. And here's a good way to start. Start with God's revealed will. So many times what we do is we waste so much of our energy and our time trying to find out God's concealed will while we completely ignore so much of his revealed will. I know I say it all the time, but as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know the Bible. We need to know God's word. Why would Jesus tell us who we're going to marry or what job to take if we don't give one iota about making disciples or living holy lives? Listen to me church the the believers in Acts chapter 1 show a confidence and a commitment to scripture that ultimately made finding even his concealed will pretty simple. It's not rocket science. You want to you want to want God's will in your life? You want to please God? Put your confidence in his word and make it a priority in your life. There's some principles to consider when you're doing this. Number 1, you can trust the Bible as your authority. Trust trust the Bible as your authority. The church submitted their lives, their circumstances, and their direction completely to God's word. Completely. Peter gets them all together. At this point, a small band of about 120 people. And he begins by telling them, it is necessary, verse 16, it is necessary that scripture be fulfilled. You know, one of my deepest and most significant convictions, and I pray that it would be New Heights Church as well, would that that you would see this as God's truth, God's word, and see this as something that needs to be fulfilled. Peter says the scripture. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about God's word. We love God's word, right? We believe God's word. We trust God's word. We study God's word. We memorize God's word. We come back to God's word. I mean, that's what Peter is doing here. He's He's deciding who the 12th apostle is going to be or the replacement for Judas, and, and he goes back to the Bible. Do you get this? We always need to go back to God's word. The scripture had to be what? It had to be fulfilled. This is an echo of Jesus too, by the way. Jesus himself said, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to what? Fulfill. I've come to fulfill. So it's an echo of Jesus. Jesus came as a Bible teacher. He was a rabbi, what we would know as a Bible teacher. And he said, I've come to fulfill everything that the scriptures say. New Heights Church, I need you to know this. Everything that God promises will come to pass. 25% of the Bible at the time of its writing was prophetic in nature, prophesying in advance what would happen and most of that surrounding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. A lot of that, it's already been fulfilled. I mean, a virgin gave birth to a son. He lived without sin. He was taken to the temple. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. The Bible prophesied of all these things, hundreds, thousands of years in advance. And today, you and I, we're in this in-between time. We're in between the first and the second coming of Jesus. We're waiting for the conclusion of his fulfilling. And this season And this is the season of human history where the church, get ready, the church is unleashed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the nations, to be church planners, to make disciples, to tell people that Jesus is God, to tell people that Jesus is Lord, to tell people that Jesus is alive, to tell people that Jesus forgives sin, to tell people that Jesus is coming again, to judge the living and the dead. Man, what a unique time we're living in today. We get to be a part of this. I mean, think about this. We're living in the days that the Israelites longed for, longed for. We're part of this amazing chapter between Jesus' first and second coming. When he comes again, everything else that we have been waiting for, the fulfillment of, will come to pass, just as God's word promised, because the scripture has to be what? It has to be fulfilled. God knows the future, God tells us the future, and God prepares us for the future that he has planned for us. The scriptures have to be fulfilled. And then Peter says this, Peter says this, that scripture is that which is the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas. Look at that in verse 16. These people saw the Old Testament as a book of prophecies given by the Holy Spirit predicting the coming of Jesus. We talked about it before, all of these prophecies pointing to Jesus. Bible scholars tell us there are 322 direct prophecies that describe for us the character and nature of the coming Messiah, as well as giving us specific details about his birth, his life, and his death. Peter gets up, he quotes two Psalms. He says, here's what we need to do. We need to obey the Bible. Here in Psalms, it says this. Peter says, it was David's David's voice, but whose words? David's voice but whose words the Holy Spirit's words And some of you are thinking what David's voice the Holy Spirit's words this is where we get the dual authorship of scripture the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible through human authors so maybe Luke's pen but it's the Holy Spirit's words maybe David's voice but it's the Holy Spirit's words the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David Peter quotes from a Psalms written by David, but it says it was the Holy Spirit's words. Some of you are thinking, I'm still not following you. So whose words is it, David's or the Holy Spirit's? How could something be at the same time the word of God and be the word of men? Well, think about kids. How many of you guys have been parents? You remember when your kids are toddlers and they're just learning to walk? I remember uh, Allie learned to walk really quick, and she was always wanting to explore different things, but she couldn't quite walk yet. She couldn't quite figure it out. So I would literally guide her. She would be taking the steps, but Dad's really walking her. I'm guiding where she goes. That's a good description of the Bible. It's, hey, it's through the, the pen of these, these human beings, but the Spirit is guiding them where they want to go. Men are speaking, but the Holy Spirit's guaranteeing they're saying what he wants them to say. And some of you are still thinking, how could fallible men produce an infallible document? Well, that's your answer. How the the Holy Spirit was inspiring the apostles, but they were fallible and got a lot of stuff wrong, right? So as they were writing it down, I mean, how how could the divine part... How could it be divine if they were, they were human and they made mistakes? Well, the divine parts of the Bible are inerrant, but the human parts are fallible. That's what people will start thinking. But you need to think about Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Did the human flesh part of him make him fallible? No. Even, even though he had fallible human flesh, his divinity made him perfect so he never sinned. Same is true of the Bible. It's not the Bible writers were themselves infallible. It's because they wrote under the influence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the product was infallible. Okay, Second Peter one twenty one says, For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, carried along is a word used for how a ship sailed. The wind would, would carry along the ship. As men wrote, God was carrying their words to the exact destination of its choosing. I know I'm getting all teachy, but you've got to understand this. This doesn't mean that the Bible uh, sometimes doesn't speak with human conventions of speech. I mean, you're going to see estimations, metaphors, figures of speech, but it does mean that the law of the Lord is perfect, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. They saw the Bible as divine, as words from God, and they devoted themselves to it. Do you see the Bible that way? If so, how could you not memorize it and devour it? And here we are, we've come to the close. I only made it halfway through my sermon. (laughs) Halfway through my sermon, but we come to the close. So that's part one. You're making tough decisions in your life. And I've said it over and over and over again. The best thing that I as your pastor can tell you to do is to know God's word you make difficult decisions in your life, and you're going to be faced with decisions every day. You need to know God's word. Start with this. I've been asked sometimes, Pastor Justin, why do you do verse-by-verse preaching? I'll be the first to tell you that there are sometimes a temptation to do really creative sermon series that might draw in more people. We've, you know, there's, I'm human, your pastor's human, and I I want more people to come and to hear God's word, and and you can even ask Pam, my admin, she'll tell you there's, doing expository preaching, you've got to put like 20 to 30 hours a week into sermon prep. You can't put 20 to 30 hours of sermon prep into your 40-hour week work. That means I've got to take it home and work on it in the evening sometimes. I've got to work it on Saturdays. I was at Liam's basketball practice, and yet I had my headphones on and my notepad out, and I'm writing notes and, and listening to different Bible commentaries. Sometimes it would be easier to do topical preaching. It wouldn't take me as long, and we can come up with really creative series. But here's the truth. It's only through God's word that lives are transformed. I mean, this is the most important part of our service is what we say, God's word. Jesus is the ultimate authority in this church and the way he exercises that authority is through his word. So we're careful to preach his word. That's what we do. I can't emphasize enough, get serious about God's word. Know his Bible, be a student of God's word. Can I pray with you this morning? Father, we love you so much. And I know we are studying Deep stuff here, looking at a story that is in the Bible because it really happened. It's the history of the church, and Lord, you're speaking through that story. We're drawing principles that apply to our life. God, I pray for everybody here today that you would put a love in their heart for your word, that you put a hunger for your word. Lord, and if they don't have it, that they would ask for it right now. They would ask if, if they can recognize the fact that they are not hungry for your word, that it's not a priority in their life, that they would at least be able to ask, God, can you give me this? Can you make me hungry for your word? And I pray that we would be people committed to the book, that we'd be known as a textual community, that we'd be known as a community that are led and guided by your word. You have the authority in this church so help us. Help us as we commit to your word. We love you, and we worship you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.